0: It is so good to be back with you this morning. I feel like it's been way too long. It's great to be with you. And I just want to say, before I dive into the message this morning, I just want to say just a quick congratulations. Uh, You have made it through the worst winter storm um, week of Texas history, I think. Why don't we give each other a little hand? This was not an easy week. Woo! How many of it? Just show a hand. How many of you lost your water this week, at least for a period of time? Okay, a lot of us. I'm raising my hand right along with you. How about power? Uh, whether it was a rolling blackout or just a solid blackout, I know some people didn't get it back till last uh, yesterday. Sometimes maybe still don't have it in places. But and then probably the worst one of all. How many of you lost your internet? Right. You were like, how are you going to live without the internet? Yeah, that's probably the hardest one right there. Uh, Anyway, but yes, it has been a hard week. Uh, You know, maybe the first time in my whole life I remember... Um, cooking water, boiling water over a gas stove to pour into a bathtub. Somebody could have a bath in my house. I feel like we're in pioneer times. This is kind of a weird, but it does make you appreciate modern conveniences, all the blessings that we have that we take for granted all the time, and, uh, and I sure hope and pray that everybody's getting all of their um, facilities back the way they need to be and everything like that. I know there's still some cleanup and uh, apartments and homes that are being um, repaired from the damages done, and so hopefully that will be quick and coming back to where you need it. So this morning, uh, I want us to dive back into a series that we started about a month ago. Well, actually, we started at the beginning of January, and it's been about a month since we've been able to, be, able, you know, kind of pick it up again. So this morning, we're going to jump back into the most important thing about you, And it's taken from a quote from A.W. Tozer, a theologian and pastor, who wrote this great book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And and I'm taking this quote from the book that says that what comes into your mind, and to my mind, and to our mind, when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. Now, at first glance, you may think, well, that seems like an overstatement. maybe I even felt like that when I first read it. Is that really true? But it's one of those statements, the more you think about it, the more you mull it over, the more you consider the implications of our view, perspective, understanding, conceptual kind of image that we have of God, it impacts so much. It impacts how we understand us, God, our relationship with God. It impacts how much we're going to, Trust God. Have faith in Him. Have faith and trust in His Word. How much are we going to live by this? Are we going to just kind of say, eh, that's, you know, optional? <laughs> uh, how much are we going to actually let that play into how we treat other people and how we conduct ourselves in this world and how we understand our purpose and meaning in life? It's so powerful. And to take it a step further, these perceptions that we have, not just of God, but just in general, perceptions, they shape our relationships and our reality. Both the good or the bad, the true or the false, the perceptions that we have, they shape our reality and our life. And I'll prove it to you. Think about this for just a minute. Let's, let's say you were absolutely convinced that your best friend was stealing from you, Okay? Now, let's say it wasn't true, but even by it not being true, you believing it, that it is true, that it was a perception that you had, by you believing this, would it have the power to destroy your friendship, yes or no? Yes, that's not a trick question. Yes, 100%. I've seen it happen to people. They're convinced, no, she's lying to me. They're stolen from me. I've seen it tear marriages apart. The one spouse that is so suspicious of the other, they're so convinced that they're being unfaithful, they tears their marriage apart, and it was not even true. But by them believing a perception that was false, it destroyed the relationship. This is why throughout this series, I've asked you to pause and pray, and I'm gonna ask you to do it again today, just between you and God. And just saying something like this, God, where is my perception off of you? Like, where's my perception of you a little bit off? Like, I don't really have it fully formed. I don't really get it. I don't really fully conceptually understand you very well. And it's typically in those areas that we don't fully understand God or we haven't really pursued Him, we haven't sought Him out that those are the areas that we're going to struggle the most. But it is true that we've got to begin to ask that question and one of the Um, one of the the things that we've been talking about over the last several weeks is that when we talk about the attributes of God, first and foremost, and before anything else, is that God is a father. That he does everything that he does as a loving father. And he's not just any father. He is a good father. And that, for some of us, can be kind of a challenge because maybe your father wasn't good. Your earthly father, that is. Or maybe your earthly father just wasn't present at all. But it's important for us to let, our, uh, let God redefine for us what he is instead of running him through the grid of what our earthly father was. But learning to understand him as a good father. And then week three, we talked about the fact that God is wise, that he is so wise, and he wants us to be wise too. And he has made his wisdom available to us. And we talked about how do we lay hold of the wisdom of God. How do we do that? We talked about that back in week three and um, on uh, January the 24th, about a month ago. So I encourage you to go back and look at that if you missed that. But so this week, we're going to shift gears here a little bit. And this week, we're going to talk about the wrath of God, the wrath of God. In other words, the fact that God will judge sin and evil in this world, that he will. Now, for some of you, you may be saying, well, Will, wait a minute. The wrath of God, I thought God was loving and merciful and kind and forgiving. Yes, to all of that, of course. He is all those things. But if you stop there, you have an incomplete picture of God. Now, let me put it to you this way as a question. How could God be good if he just looked the other way when faced with evil? How could God be good If he just looked the other way when it came to terrorism or the victimization of innocent people, if there wasn't an ultimate judgment for all of that evil that has been done, God wouldn't be good. In the same way that we would say a police officer who witnessed a crime going down, if he or she just turned away and ignored it and didn't engage and try to stop the criminal act, that would not be a good police officer. We collectively as a society would say that is the opposite of a good police officer. We'd say the same thing about a father. A good father that saw his kids heading down a road towards destruction, I mean certain destruction for them, and he didn't try to intervene or warn them in some way. He would not be a good father. And in a similar way, this is God's heart for his family, for his kids, for his children. And sometimes people will say, well, God is loving, but he, also, judge- he also judges and he is wrathful, right? He, has- he shows wrath. Like, those are opposing. They're opposite ends or, or, you know, somehow they're at odds with one another. But I want you to see today that that is an incorrect way to understand his wrath and his judgment, I want you to see today, as crazy and as impossible as this sounds, that God's wrath is actually an outflow. It flows out of His love. And let me explain it this way. Let's say somebody is trying to break into my house, right? Somebody wants to come into my house and wants to injure and hurt my family. I want you to know, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room or watching online today. I will stop that individual by any means necessary. You know why? Because of my love, not in spite of it. Does that make sense? I think every mom and dad here can understand what I'm talking about, that it is because of my love that I would stop that individual. I don't want them to be hurt. And all throughout Scripture, from Old Testament to New Testament, you see that God is showing us that he is just He is righteous. He is holy. And because of that, because of who he is, there has to be retribution against evil and sin that has happened in this world. And he warns his people over and over and over, especially in the Old Testament, we see these warnings um, to the nation of Israel. And even as they 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 broke into into Israel to the north and Judah to the south, there was warning after warning through the prophets that God gave to Israel first and then they were conquered by Assyria, carted off in exile. 150 years later, Judah to the south. God continues for hundreds of years. Are you hearing that? Hundreds of years God is warning them over and over. If you do not turn from your sin, your idolatry, putting other things before me, Over and over and over you're doing these things. If you do not do them, there will be judgment, there will be wrath poured out on you. And because they were unwilling to turn, that God had to judge that sin. And I want to turn our attention to an Old Testament book by the name of Lamentations, because this adds a beautiful insight into this conversation about God's wrath and his judgment. Now let me tell you a little bit about Lamentations. Lamentations is one of the only books in the Bible that has this beautiful mixture of profound emotion and this literary intricacy to the way it was written. Beautiful. Its author was thought to be the prophet Jeremiah, and he is pouring out his heart to God during a time when his precious nation, of Judah, and more specifically, the city of Jerusalem has been overtaken by the Babylonians, and they are being carted off into exile, and he is crying out to God over all of the heartache, and all the hopelessness, and all of the starvation, and the death, and all the horrible things that have been happening, and he writes these five beautiful, but dark, poems in the Old Testament that have come to be known as the book of Lamentations, the five chapters of Lamentations. Now, there is this incredible structure to the book, and this is something I just recently learned about, and I'm excited to get to share it with you today, about the way the book has been structured. And as my knowledge, I don't know of another book in the Bible that has been structured like this. It's really unique, where the first two chapters of the book, chapters one and two, and the last two, four and five, have exactly 22 verses in each chapter. The middle chapter, chapter three, has three times as many verses. Has 66 verses. Now, the way that this literary structure is put together, and this is why literary critics and historians would tell us, is that it's meant to be a crescendo. It's meant to be a kind of like peak within the book. So you go to that middle chapter, chapter 3, and go to the middle verse, verse 33, and it becomes the encapsulation of the heart of the entire book. It becomes the theological bullseye, the spiritual bullseye for the entire book about the wrath and judgment of God. Don't you want to hear what it is? All right, let's take a look together. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33, here's what it says. For he, meaning God, does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So there's two statements I want to derive from that passage right there. One implicit and one explicit, okay? Here's the first one. God is the one who afflicts. God is the one who afflicts, and here's the second one. He does not do it from his heart. He doesn't afflict from his heart. He doesn't grieve the children of men, which is the outworking emotions of being afflicted, going through pain and suffering and difficulty, God wants us to know this does not come from my heart. Now God is being clear, and he does this all throughout scripture, that he is sovereign over everything that happens, both the good and the bad. Nothing happens by chance, nothing is random in this life. It either happens by his intention or his permission. Did you get that either he intended it or he permitted it everything so this means all good and bad when you stub your toe you get poison ivy you get a pain in your neck your child wakes up at 2am and is vomiting when you get covid like my family did a month ago when you you whenever a snowstorm, an ice storm hits your, you lose your power, your gas, your, your water, your internet. God is over all of that, he tells us. But he's saying that here's what I want you to keep in mind that the pain that it causes, the affliction that it causes, the grief that it causes, does not come from my heart. What Scripture shows us over and over, and Jeremiah does such a beautiful job right here, is there is this reluctance in God's heart over things that bring us pain and affliction in this life. Now let me be clear, God is not afflicted over the ultimate good that he's going to bring to our life through the pain. Like you hear stories all the time, and I do too, incredible, unbelievable, profound pain that people have been through, and they will say we wouldn't trade it for anything because of what God did through it. Like he used it, but he wants us to know that the pain itself does not come from my heart. It does not flow from who I am. This is such a beautiful promise because it helps us to understand that God is not some platonic divine force up in heaven pulling levers completely detached from the emotional impact that it's having on our lives. He cares. It hurts his heart. He feels it too, right? He's impacted by it as well. Even if the the pain and suffering that comes to our life, this is so important, even if the pain and suffering that comes to our life is a consequence of our own sin, even those times, God says, that does not come from my heart. Because sometimes pain comes into our life because of someone else's sin that was committed in our life. Sometimes it's because of our sin. And sometimes it's just situations out of our hand seems to be completely just circumstances of life. It's just hard, It's just difficult. And God's saying, I can use all of that to draw you back to me. In other words, God is showing us his natural and his strange work. You ever thought about it like that? That God has a natural work? In other words, this is what my heart naturally, this is what I naturally gravitate towards. And God's saying, and here is a strange thing that I do sometimes. Another prophet, Prophet Isaiah, that spoke to God's people during the same time in history of the exile of the people of Judah was the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 28, verse 21, he sheds some beautiful light on this understanding of God's heart in this strange and alien work of God. He says, The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizzim. And this was a place, if you're not familiar with this moment in history, where God fought on behalf of King David when he was the king of Israel. And brought the victory to Israel. And then he talks about another war. He says, and he will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon. This was when God fought on behalf of Joshua and brought the victory to Israel. And what Isaiah right here is showing is that the Lord, he's saying, these places where I fought, you know, on Mount Perizim and in the valley of Gibeon, I fought for you. Now I'm going to fight against you, and you're not going to (laughs) win. Because of your sin and your lack of turning from the evil in your life, I am compelled to go against it, to stop it, and to save the innocent that are left. I have to come against it in this moment. And he says, and so I'm going to do this to do his what to do his work. Let's say it together, his strange work and to perform his task. What kind of task? His alien task. He's saying, I want you to see, this is alien to my heart. This is strange to my heart. This is not what I want. This is not where my heart naturally goes. This is alien and strange to me. This is not the kind of God that I want to be. But I cannot give up my holiness and my righteousness. And I have to be just. I have to do what's right. And this is what he's doing. He's stepping in. In other words, he's sending what they deserve, but his deepest heart is their merciful restoration. As a matter of fact, I love what what Jeremiah later writes, the prophet Jeremiah. He's talking about, and he's sort of vision casting, when the exile is over, and we're done in Babylon, and some of you may know the history. uh, uh, Babylon was overtaken by Persia, and under the Persians, the... uh, The Israelites were allowed to begin to make their way back to Israel and back to Jerusalem to rebuild. But he's looking from that moment of that conquering of Babylon coming in in 587 B.C. where he destroyed the city, and he's saying there's coming a day. God is already dreaming of the day where I'm going to rebuild and I'm going to reestablish and I'm going to redeem everything that got torn apart, and here's what he says in Jeremiah 32, verse 41. He says, I will rejoice in doing them, let's say it together, in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. Now, check this out. This is God speaking. He says, with all my heart and with all my soul, God is giving us this rare and beautiful glimpse into his heart, into his soul. Have you ever thought about the fact that God has a soul? God has a heart? He made you and I in his image. We have a heart. We have a soul. And he's saying that I want to do them good. I want to plant them in this land with faithfulness. This is my heart. This is what I desire. You see, mercy is natural for him. Mercy to be about restoration, about redemption, that is natural, but judgment is his strange and alien work. This is what God over and over shows us throughout Scripture, that I, my, my, the impulse of my heart, God says, is to do you good, is to bless you, It's to swallow you up with joy. I want you to be blessed as my children. I want you to walk with me. I don't want you to walk in sync with me. I want you to desire me and to seek me and let me be the center of your life because that is the way I created you. And you operate best according to your divine design. It's beautiful when it's working Right? And you may be saying, maybe at home watching this or here in the room, saying, well, okay, well, if that is God's heart, then why would God send anyone to hell? Why why would he do that, right? So let's shift gears from Old Testament to New Testament. Let's take a look at what Jesus said. And I think first we need to establish where we're going with this. And I want to start by saying that the spiritual condition of being condemned by our sin is referred to by Jesus as lostness. This is the way it's talked about in the New Testament, that there is a spiritual lostness. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said it this way. He's referring to himself here. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are, let's say it together, those who are lost, right? Those who are lost. So, what does it mean to be lost? It's a really important question to be asking. Is this just mean somebody that God's mad at? When is someone lost? And is anybody lost today? What does it mean to be lost? Well, theologically speaking, the outcome of being lost, it's clear in scripture. Jesus talked about it over and over. The outcome of being lost is hell eternal separation from God. A really uncomfortable thing to think about or to dwell on. It's really a difficult thing to think about that being a place where you might go or being a kind of person that God would send to such a place. It like really messes with us. But Jesus, to be clear, He talked about hell all the time. As a matter of fact, this is kind of an interesting fact. He actually talked more about hell than he did heaven. And he talked about it not as a an ethereal kind of theoretical place, but as a physical reality that actual people, lost people would go to. But he over and over is showing us that the reason for which I came was so that so people would not have to go to this eternal separation from God, hell. I want them to be found. I want them to know God's purpose for their life. So let's define, what does it mean to be lost? To be lost means to be out of place. It means to be out of place. It means to be where you're not supposed to be, in a place where you're not supposed to be. And anytime something is not where it's supposed to be, if you think about things being designed to be in a particular place, then they lose their purpose. Think about it like this. If you lose your car keys or your house keys, anybody ever done that? You ever lose your house keys, car keys? Like that's a very frustrating thing to happen, isn't it? It's so frustrating. It doesn't matter how much you want them, how much you desire them, don't matter how much you love those keys, right? They are useless to you at that moment. They are without Purpose, because they are not where they were meant to be because those keys were designed. They have a design to them, don't they? They have a purpose that they slide into that lock and they unlock the door. They start the car. They were designed for that purpose. And when they are out of place, they cannot serve their purpose. They become meaningless because of their lostness, because they are out of place. And I, I think it's very true that it could be said that if you are lost in any sense of the word, you are likely not going li- to wind up where you want to be because you are lost. And, and here's the interesting thing about lostness, that lostness many times has this disorientation that goes with it. In, in other words, I mean, you can be lost and not know you're lost. Many a driver were lost before they knew they were, but not before their spouse knew that they were. All right, at least that's true for me. Anyway, but it's true, you can be lost and not know you're lost. Here's the other disorientation that lostness can do to us sometimes. It can cause us to begin to become confused about self and God, that we begin to switch places. When we're lost and we're out of place, we're not in sync with God. We're not, we're, if you're, someone is lost to God, we are not where we're supposed to be in his world. We're not where we're supposed to be in terms of alignment and a relationship with him. We're not even where we're supposed to be in terms of our understanding of ourselves and what we're here to do. Like we, we miss all of that. So meaning of life and purpose of life is something we feel like we're constantly grasping for. And we miss Because we're putting self on the throne of life, that self is calling all of the shots, rather than the way in which we were designed, like the key going into the door, that God, we were designed for God to be at the center of our life, for us to run on him, that he is our power source, he is our wisdom source, he is our love source, he is everything. And when we're in sync with him, there is this power and there's this continuity and this harmony and this beauty that happens in and through our life that can happen no other way and this is what happens when we're lost and it's because we we don't really want God to be God we want to be God like I want God to come in and help me yeah absolutely God if you can come in and work all this out and make happen what I want happen that would be great But it's important for us to understand that wanting God to be God is very different from wanting God to help me. Wanting God to help me is me still being on the throne. I'm still calling the show. I just want God to be my assistant. Wouldn't it be great that God could be your assistant, right? He could just do it. You you pray, you ask, and he's going to do what you want. But he runs the universe and not you, right? People get real frustrated with God, That he is the one in charge. He has first claim on your life and mine too. We don't. That offends human pride. We don't like that. How dare he? That's exactly the kind of thing that someone who thinks they're a God would say, right? How dare he tell me what to do, how to live, what to say no to, what to say yes to. But we're out of sync, we're out of place, we're lost. I want you to think about this today. Like, really think about this question. And please don't let it offend you. But are you lost today? Are you out of place? Do you feel like, man, me and God, we're like totally out of sync? I don't live in my purpose. I don't feel like there's a lot of meaning, especially not divine meaning, in my life. I feel like I'm not where I'm supposed to be right now. Is that you? Right now? And I know for some people, just to ask the question who would hear this might feel like, wow, that's really offensive, Will. I can't believe you would ask people. How dare you ask people that question? But think about it like this I don't think it's any more offensive than if a physician, a doctor, were to find a fatal yet treatable disease in your body and said, look, you need to take action now. Rather than say, well, I don't really want to say anything because it might offend them. It might make them feel uncomfortable. Jesus said we need to love each other too much than to treat each other like that. We've got to love each other enough to say, I want you to be found. I want you to know the God that created you. I want you to know the God that has spanned heaven to earth so that you might know him, that you can be forgiven, you can be set free, and you can walk in that every day every single day. You see, Jesus taught us over and over and over that it's God's heart that the lost be found. If you've never read it, the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the third book in the New Testament, Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives three parables back to back, the parable of the shepherd, the parable of the coin, and the parable of the son. And in all three of those, the point was the same that the heart of God is for the lost. He comes after them. He wants them. He desires them. He's longing for them. He wants them to be with him. He wants them to walk with him, trust him. But the first step in that process, and if you remember, the last of those three parables is the prodigal son where he finally had to come to himself and say, I'm lost. (laughs) I'm here with these pigs and I'm like... Wanting to eat the pig food and like my father's over there wanting me to come home. I need to go home. I need to turn from my sin and return to my father. That had to happen before he could be found. And even the father says, My my son who was lost has been found. He's come home. We're gonna celebrate. He's back. She's back. Maybe you're the prodigal daughter. Maybe you're the prodigal son. You've run away, and it's time for you to get back where you're supposed to be with God. His heart is for that. And we see throughout Scripture that God is showing us pictures of what it looks like when the lost become found, and that happens only through God's wrath and judgment being satisfied through his son, Jesus Christ. The prophet, or pardon me, the apostle, Paul, Writes in one of his letters, one of his epistles in the New Testament to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. Here's what it looks like when somebody gets found. Here's what it looks like when somebody who comes in sync with God's plan, God's heart for their life. I love this. He starts when you were lost. He says, When you were dead in your sins, lostness. God made you alive with Christ, that we can be forgiven, we can come to Him, we can approach Him, we can be made right through Jesus. He forgave us all our sins. I love that. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. It's like, I'm going to expunge your record. You have sinned over and over and over and over and over. You've blown it a bunch but I'm willing to forgive all of that because of Jesus dying on your behalf so that you might be set free. Which stood against us and condemned us. That's what the sin did, that's what the lostness did. It was just a condemning. You're never good enough. You can't, and some of you feel like you have these voices in your head all that, you're never good enough. Your life's meaningless, no purpose. Why are you doing what you do? You're no good. God says, that's not the way I created you. Come to me, come to me, trust me. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. It cannot be retrieved. No one can ever hold that against you again. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a gift. God's saying, I have squashed the judgment and wrath in Jesus for you. So you can be found today. You can know me. Will you come to me? Will you trust me? And maybe for some of you in this room, you need to be found for the first time. You need to come to Christ and become a child of God starting right here, right now. And some of you have been out of place. You know Christ, but you have been wandering. There's been a prodigal time in your life and it needs to come to an end where you come back and you walk and sink, you get back where you're supposed to be in this world walking in divine purpose and meaning that only comes from god and that he will guide and direct you through his holy spirit through his word through his people if you'll let him here's the application prayer i'm asking you to pray with me it's simply saying father thank you for your heart of mercy oh my goodness can we ever repay him never May we we never take it for granted and assume our privileged status as God's children gives us license to do whatever we want. That's not why Jesus died. That's not why he redeemed our lives. He wants us to live for him and with him. May we be grateful children who love and respect our Heavenly Father and let that gratitude flow from the lives that we live. Would you start today by saying, God, I just want to live differently. I want to ask you to help me to begin to live with you on the throne, not self, Putting you. Before I make any big decisions, I pray. I'm gonna start taking time to let your word be a part of my life, let your wisdom flow into my life. I'm gonna begin to make time, as Sean talked about earlier, to connect with and become a part of the body of Christ. There's such a wealth of encouragement and knowledge and information that God can give you through His people if you're open to it. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com dot com.